Let's go. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the uh, text up on the screens behind me uh, in a little bit. Maybe. I don't know. All right. Who knows? All right. You should have brought your Bible. That's all I think. All right. Maybe it'll also be on your screen at home if you're watching us online. I don't know. I don't make promises around here. But either way, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would love to fix that. We actually have a big old shelf full of really nice ones that we haven't used in a while because, you know, like there's a virus or something. All right? And so we can actually solve the no Bible problem really, really fast. And so if you don't have one that you can call yours, one that you can just call your copy of God's Word, uh, uh, I want to fix that because we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things. Chief among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. Like there's a lot of really good reasons God gave us the Bible, but there's like this really awesome extra special reason. He wants you to know Him. And the Bible is what He uses to get you to that point. And so uh, you know, Bible reading is kind of a fun thing around here. We like it. All right, so we have made it to week 17 now of our effort to walk together through the letter that we call First uh, Corinthians. Uh, we're actually going to shut it down after today and take uh, an extended break. Um, Focus on some other good things, uh, getting ready for and then springing out of uh, Easter. And so uh, we hope, uh, God willing, uh, we hope to pick all this back up again in June. Uh, but who knows what God gives us, right? All right, so uh, if you're new here, First Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church, a very young church in the Greek city of Corinth. It's a church that he would have known incredibly well. Uh, he helped to start the church there uh, only a few years before this letter is written. Uh, he spent about a year and a half there, we think, 18 months. Uh, starting the church, being kind of the first pastor there before he moved on to other places that didn't have the gospel yet, didn't have a gospel witness yet, and started churches in those other places. And so he kind of started the church and then moved on to start other churches in other places. And now he's writing a letter back to this church he knows pretty well. Like, like the, the most liberal estimate is that he's only been gone for about five years. All right? And so in all likelihood, it's closer to about three. All right? And so uh, it's a church he knows incredibly well. He knows their ups, he knows their downs, he knows the things that they're good at, and he definitely knows the things that they're not so good at. He knows the struggles of the church and he knows the struggles of the city. And so the thing uh, that, that, that's going on in this letter is that, that Paul is walking incredibly patiently alongside of a church that, that was struggling to figure some very important things out. They, they struggled uh, pretty mightily with, with a, a deep sense of pride. They carried a lot of pride in an overinflated view of themselves and their own maturity. And, and, and when, when that is in place, when, when, when you have not this overinflated view of yourself and your own spiritual maturity, that leads to other significant problems. Uh, it caused them to, to have a lot of problems in their understandings of the gospel. It caused them to have a lot of problems in the leadership of the church, um, both just in kind of uh, philosophical terms and in just like general malpractice. They got a lot of things incorrect because of this pride issue. And so the angle that, that Paul chooses to address this issue, to address and approach this stuff, is by consistently coming back to the idea that God's kingdom is intentionally upside down from all the kingdoms of this world. All the logic and all of the, the, the value systems of the competing kingdoms of this world are, are backwards, inside out, and upside down to God's kingdom and what he is building. It values different things. It celebrates and exalts different things. And it does so, we're told, on purpose. It's no accident. This is by design. Not only, not only because that's, you know, that's the way that the world was 
originally created to function, right? Uh, everything, everything post Garden of Eden, everything post Genesis three is broken and fallen, and, and it's bent, unlike what it's designed to be. And, and we're told over and over again throughout the scriptures that God is actively restoring what has been broken, right? And so that's one of the reasons that His kingdom is intentionally upside down. But it's also upside down because, well, that's the way that God would be most glorified. That's the way his fame would spread the broadest. The upside-down kingdom uh, and the upside-down realities of his kingdom, it means that, that entrance into his kingdom can only ever happen one way. It can't be earned. It can't be positioned. It can only happen one way. You can only gain entrance into God's good kingdom through hearts that have been changed by him to love what he loves and love him deeply and pursue him, walk in relationship with him. And so... For, for those of us who, who, by God's grace, have been brought into this kingdom, that, that means that these kingdom realities, these otherworldly realities, are going to feel just that. They're going to feel otherworldly to us. They're going to feel foreign to us. They're going to feel upside down and inside out, backwards and nonsensical. Sometimes they might even feel contemptible to us. The values of the kingdoms that we're coming out of are so vastly different that sometimes God's kingdom looks so upside down that our natural reaction is to scoff. And so whenever we find ourselves in the middle of these two kingdoms in dissonance, the question that we've been training ourselves, discipling and disciplining ourselves to ask in that moment is, okay, okay, but is it beautiful? Is it good is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And if the answers to those questions are yes, well, then that means that dissonance is a temporary thing. That dissonance is a momentary season that needs to be navigated through trusting in the goodness of the one doing the navigating. Trusting in the, the promises of the one who's building this otherworldly kingdom. It's a temporary layover on the way to an eternal happily ever after. So we've made it to chapter 10 now. We've spent three weeks so far on the same issue. Folks down in Corinth are fighting, bickering, if you will, over leftover idol meat. Uh, and so if you weren't here for that, if maybe you're, you're first time back in a while or watching us, you know, you're engaging with us as a visitor, uh, if you're new here. Um, so the, the scenario is this. Uh, there was meat that was left over just kind of laying around after sacrifices had been made, animal sacrifices had been made to pagan idols. And, and they, they figured out, hey, we could just pick this up and sell it again. Like, that, that's something we could do. And so that was a common practice in the city of Corinth. That was a common practice even among the Christians in Corinth. There, there, folks were buying and eating this secondhand meat. And you would think that by now, three weeks in, we would have covered all the angles that can be covered on this issue. But if nothing else, Paul is a very thorough man. All right? So he's got one more thing left to flesh out. You ready to look at it? You got people in the, I have a right to do this camp. And you have a people, and you have a bunch of people in the, Christians should always practice abstinence in this thing camp. All right? and, and they don't really get along. They don't like each other because they don't agree on stuff. And in the world that we live in, disagreeing on stuff means you got to be enemies, right? All right? And so uh, Paul makes it clear, Paul makes it clear to uh, the, the abstinence camp, makes it clear to those who think that you should never, ever, 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 ever be eaten that they're actually not correct. 
That there's actually nothing wrong with the meat. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with the meat. It, it added law back into their gospel equation. Not only that, but the, the, their posture towards this stuff also kind of gave those, those pagan idols way more credit than they deserved. They were lifeless statues. And you laying some meat in front of a lifeless statue doesn't fundamentally change that meat. And so, it's harmless, he argues. And those in the, the abstinence camp, they were, they were getting something very fundamental, very, very wrong. But then, Paul also has some things to say to the I have rights camp. Tells them that the flexing their freedom at the expense of everybody else doesn't make you mature. It actually makes you a giant jerk. A selfishly sinful one. He tells them that loving their freedoms more than they love their weaker brother is not mature. It's not even Christ-like. It's, it's sinful. It's a sign of gross immaturity. And then last week, Paul shifts in the beginning of chapter 10 to, to clarify that there, are, that there are also a whole bunch of things that we often consider to be rights that aren't actually rights at all. The, we might try to pass them off as rights, try to convince ourselves and justify them to ourselves, but at, all, at the end of the day, it's just a cover for things that God's people have no business being a part of, no business participating in. They're things that God's people have always struggled with when will likely always struggle with. And, and so God's people have always shown a, a pattern of failure in these regards. And so we ought to heed their warning. We ought to follow the example that they failed to follow. So you ready to look at the last angle? Let's put a nice little bow on it this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. The Apostle Paul says this, it says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let's call time out there. Okay, so Paul quotes back to them. If you notice the little quotation marks, Paul quotes back to them uh, their own words again, right? And we saw this, uh, the same thing in the, I think, the middle of chapter 6. And, and so, like, like, just hearing those words now, after we spent three weeks plus on this issue, how, like, how immature do those words sound? All things are lawful for me. Because of Jesus, I get to do what I want. Forget everybody else. Right? Doesn't that sound childish to you? Like, haven't we just kind of beaten that dead horse? Yeah, Paul's thorough. And so, just like in chapter 6, Paul goes, yeah, yeah. Jesus does open doors for a lot of stuff, but um, yeah, not everything is helpful. Not everything is actually good for you. Not everything is helpful. Yeah, you might have freedom in Christ, but not all things build up. Yes, you, it, it might very well be a freedom for you, but it also might be terribly destructive. It might very well be a freedom for you, but it might also take you in the opposite direction of where you're wanting to go. It seems kind of, kind of backwards and kind of not so smart to me. See, the posture for God's people, it's, it's not in clutching with what, to what we think is owed to us. It's not clinging to what we think is owed to us. In fact, that's an incredibly anti-gospel posture. Because, like, if we read the Bible correctly, I don't think you want what's owed to you. I don't want what's owed to me. Right? 
In fact, I want nothing to do with that. Our quick read accounting of what we often perceive to be unfair situations, it, it tends to, or at least my own heart, tends to overlook the greatest act of not getting what I deserved in all of history. Right? Keeping a scorecard of how often you get your way versus your neighbor might seem fair in some moments, but it's never a game you want God to play with you. See, the Christian posture is to lean towards a sacrificial service of your neighbor, even if it's incredibly lopsided. Because you know that you're on the good end of lopsided. To actively go looking for ways to give up what might be owed to you for the benefit of your neighbor. Now, are, are rights and sacrificial service always at odds with each other? Are they mutually exclusive things? Are they always enemies? No, they're not. But sometimes they very much are. Sometimes they are polar opposites of each other in how you react in the moments where they are where you're forced to choose between one or the other, that's going to reveal some very fundamental things about the, your spiritual health. It's going to be a clear indicator of some very important realities in your heart. Like, like if you want some kind of spiritual maturity litmus test, that'll do it. That, that'll reveal some things for you very quickly. If you find yourself in the moment where you have to choose between what is owed to you and what you can give up for the sake of another, the, the, how quickly you make that choice, how, how deeply you fight that battle inside of you, it's going to reveal some massive things about where you are spiritually. If you're honest, it'll, it'll flesh out a lot of things that you need to work on. And if you're in the abstinence camp, if you're more inclined towards the Christians should never participate in, in this thing camp, you probably hear that and go, yeah, you get them, Paul. You tell them. They ought to give up their rights so that others may grow. Absolutely. You, you show them what's what, Mr. Apostle, sir. We better slow down because Paul actually has the abstinence folks in mind here. Because look at verse 25. It says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the, earth is, uh, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So if you're more inclined to the abstinent side of the issue, if you, you, you got to fight this battle in, in a different way. Right? Uh, you, you still, you still got to fight this battle. You still got to fight the, the love your neighbor more than you love yourself issue. And so, and so how do you do that? Well, Paul gives a scenario here. It's not the only one, but Paul gives a scenario here. He says, don't go on a witch hunt down at the local meat market. Right? It's not your job to be some kind of hard-hitting investigative journalist slash discernment blogger. That's not your role. Oh, but people need to know. No, actually they don't. They don't need to know. Paul says here, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Meaning everything belongs to God. Everything. And that includes the meat that had been misused. It didn't stop being his because some ignorant pagan idolater got their grubby little hands on it for a little while. It's still his. 
because it belongs to God. Because you belong to God as a co-heir with Christ, that means it belongs to you too. That's your me. You can have it. And so enjoy it without question. And let others do the same. Paul argues for the umpteenth time here that that meat is intrinsically fine all on its own. And the only way it ever becomes something that is off limits is if your conscience is bound in some way. And so here's an idea. How about we don't go looking for a reason to bind ours and others' consciences? How about we don't create a problem where there isn't one? You're not helping your brother in that moment. What you're doing is creating a new problem. You're adding a burden to them that they otherwise wouldn't have. So is ignorance bliss then? Well, a lot of things in life obviously no, but here it seems to be the case. It seems to be the case. And then Paul does what Paul seems to do best. He butts into his own argument to give a little parenthetical explanation of things. Uh, Look at verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're uh, disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. We'll call time out there. All right, so uh, Paul creates this little hypothetical scenario for us, right? So he says, what happens if you get invited to a dinner party at an unbeliever's house? And, and then one of my favorite parts here, he says, and if you're disposed to go. All right, um, that sounds like a negative word, but disposed is just another word for, for desire. And so basically he's saying, if you're invited to somebody's house for supper and you actually want to go. All right, which is fun to me because that means that the Apostle Paul has a category for being invited to dinner and not wanting to go. All right? I feel it. All right? <laughs> um, he says, if you're invited to, to dinner at an unbeliever's house and, and listen, in a town with a lot of pagan options, you can probably make some guesses and some assumptions about where that meat came from. Like, like, is it really hard to figure out? You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to, to pull that one off. You, you can just kind of assume where that meat came from. They bought the nice stuff because you were coming over. You can make some assumptions about where that meat came from, right? All right it says, uh, it says, Paul says, don't ask any questions. Don't bring it up. Just be a good guest and enjoy the meal. You'll be fine. It belongs to God, right? But what if? What if? The host offers up the information that the meat had been previously sacrificed to an idol. What do you do then? Paul says, now it is time to abstain. And it's not just the ones with the conscience issue. The command is for all. He says, if you're God's people, whether it's a problem for you or it's not a problem for you, If your host offers up the information that the meat has been sacrificed to an idol, it is now time to abstain. But why? I thought it was okay for the people who didn't have a conscience issue, right? Like Paul's made it clear that it's okay to to know where the meat came from and still not have a problem and still be able to enjoy. That's, That's an okay thing, right? Why should those without a conscience issue have to abstain in that moment? Because it matters to your host. 
That's what he says, right? He says, not for the sake of your conscience, but whose? Theirs. I mean, think through this for a second. There are only real, really two possibilities for why they would have offered up that information in that moment. Why an unbeliever would have brought up the fact that the meat had been sacrificed to an idol. And so, and so Paul says, Paul says, because they're reverently proud of the meat. That's one of the options, right? If your host is offering up, this meat was sacrificed to one of the idols this week. They, what's happening in that moment is they're reverently proud of where that meat came from, and, and, and they want you to be reverently proud of it too. They're fishing for something in that moment and inviting you in to the extension of worship, right? The second option for why they would have brought up the meat is they assume it's out of bounds for you. They know you're a Christian. They think it's off limits for you, and so they're trying to love you well and be a good friend and warn you. And both of those scenarios calls for abstinence from you in that moment. In option one, they, they're, they're trying to, to unite the, the act of worship with the reverence of the meal. And so we, all we have to do is go back to what we talked about last week, the paragraph before this, when Paul has explicitly clear commands about uh, celebrating in that, that extension of worship. And so like, a Christian can't in good conscience do that. It becomes a conscience issue for you in that moment. But in option two, it's brought up to, uh, by a friend that's truly trying to be a really good friend to you, right? This would be like on the same level as if somebody kind of wrongly assumed that you had a milk allergy and they pointed to the end of the table and said, don't have that one, it's got cheese in it. Now, they're wrong in their assumption. It's not out of bounds for you. The Christian's conscience isn't bound in some way. It's, you can have all you want, but, but even in that case, Paul still gives the command to abstain in that moment. And like you read the temperature of the room. This logic kind of goes directly against what often gets passed off as modern Christian thought. Modern Christian apologetic approach. A lot of people try to argue that that's the moment that you need to show how free Christians are. No, 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 no. I can have this too. Watch. Right? And that's often the posture we take. See, see, we get to do this stuff too. I know you always thought we were boring, but we're, we're really a lot of fun. You should follow Jesus too. There are two absolutely massive problems with that strategy, though. One, the argument completely ignores what seems to be a very clear biblical command here. And people get around that by arguing that, well, Paul was only talking about the specific scenario of eating meat that had been previously sacrificed to an idol, and that doesn't at all have any kind of larger bearing on any other principle that we might apply it to. So move along, nothing to see here. Second problem, though, is a lot bigger. Um, showing how free we are places the focus of evangelism on the wrong leverage point. Let me go ahead and plant the flag for anybody who might be tempted to think otherwise. I truly believe, like genuinely believe, that despite the narrative of being the ice-cold fuddy-duddies, Christians actually have more fun in this world than the rest of the world. And, and some of you are kind of internally going, please. And that shows how pervasive that narrative actually is. But I genuinely believe that we have more fun than the rest of the world. And I genuinely believe that because I genuinely believe both the doctrine of the fall and the doctrine of redemption. 
I, I wholeheartedly buy into the logic of those two things. We live in a broken world that does not, and hear me, cannot actually satisfy to the level we hope it will. We can't ever get there. There is a ceiling to what we can enjoy in this world because of the fracture of this world. We are born into uh, this world with a maligned enjoyment of our sin, uh, but no sin can ever, and I mean ever, produce the same depth of joy that God's design can actually produce. It doesn't have the legs for it. God's design is wider and deeper and truer than anything our puny little sinful hearts could ever dream up for ourselves. The most creative and industrious sinful heart to ever exist will only be a footnote in God's story of being the one who actually created the concept of fun. He dreamt that up. It's his idea. And he said, here you go, creation. Enjoy it. Now we in the sinfulness of who we are and taken his good design and we have bent it into something less than what it was originally created to be. Like, like, like think about it. Can you improve on his design? You got something in the tank that, that he was neither smart enough nor good enough to add to it in the original? You kidding me? I truly believe, truly believe that God's people have more fun than the rest of the world because we have been freed and are being freed to enjoy his creation in the very way it was created and intended to be enjoyed. And right on the heels of that, I also believe that that enjoyment needs to be lived out in the public square. I think, I think a broken world needs to see just how sad and pathetic their idea of fun is. I think they need to be shown a better example. Wholeheartedly agree with that. But hear me. The gospel is not come to Jesus because we have more fun than you. I mean, I, I don't think that's untrue. It's a really nice secondary issue. But it's not the gospel. The gospel is repent of your sins and come to Jesus for salvation, right? Come follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. And in Paul's hypothetical scenario, your friend doesn't need to be proven wrong about how much freedom you've got. What your friend needs is to be told where true and everlasting freedom is found. That's what your friend needs in that moment. It is a missionary moment. An abstinence in that moment should be seen as an investment in the gospel understanding of your friend. It should be seen as a check that you're excited to write because you desperately want your friend to know the surpassing beauty and the supreme value of King Jesus. That's what he is aiming you towards in that moment. Don't you dare waste that moment on merely exercising your temporary freedom. No, cash in that moment on something of eternal value. Play the long game here. The, the infighting going on in Corinth, the tribalism that emerged over can we or can't we, like, like both sides seem to fail to ever figure out that this wasn't about them. They're fighting over what they get, and there's a much larger game in play here. 
They kept confusing the moment in front of them as the only moment that somehow mattered, which caused them to take incredibly temporary victories and turn them into zero-sum games. They took things that lasted for a moment and they acted like it was the, the forever issue and something that needed to be celebrated forever. And so, and in the back end of verse 29 here, Paul steps out of his parenthetical explanation. He says this, he says, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Verse 30, if I am denounced because of, or for, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? All right, so verses 29 and 30 here, they often get what we call a proof text treatment. All right, and so if, if you're new here, proof texting is when you take uh, something that has been written, clearly written to say one thing, and you separate it out from its context, and you use it to say something completely different, or sometimes the exact opposite. That's, what's, that's what proof texting is. It happens all the time in church history. All right? All right, so uh, if you read verses 29 and 30 all by themselves, without the, the context of chapters 8, 9, and 10, it sounds like there should never be any limits at all on what a Christian is allowed to enjoy. So if I can try to be a good pastor for a second, give you something practical for a change. You see somebody um, quoting verses 29 and 30 here without it being connected to everything else Paul said, probably should be a big old red flag for how they're using it. Um, to prove my point, um, more often than not, these two verses get slapped onto an argument for why Christians should smoke weed. God made it. If I have it with thankfulness, who are you to, to have a problem with it? It's not a problem to my conscience. As long as I'm thankful, God would bless it. That's literally the logic that these two verses usually get applied with. But we do, we happen to live in a world where context does matter. And Paul has worn out a couple of pins by now arguing that things are just a little more nuanced than that. It's not just that God made it. It's not just the conscience issue. It's not just thankfulness. There's a lot of layers to this that you haven't thought through yet. And so blanket statements like, I get to, you should just deal with it, not really Paul's style. Not the angle he takes. Probably not what verses 29 and 30 are saying. So what is he saying then? He's saying that refusing to act on your rights for a while is not the same thing as them not existing at all. Not the same thing as them not existing at all. Paul taking a moment to lovingly lay down some freedoms that belong to him, even an extended season of laying down some freedoms that belong to him, it is not the same thing as him forever forfeiting that freedom from now on. And I, and I get it, man. When I say that out loud, I, just like you, I think to myself, does that have to be said? Is that something that Paul even needs to elaborate on? And sadly, man, I really think the answer is yes. I really think the answer is yes. Our world isn't all that different from first century Corinth. We also tend to see this stuff as some kind of zero-sum game. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit back in, in January, I think. But, but we tend to, to see our get-tos as have-tos. We tend to take anything that is, that's in the category of get to, and we put it in the category of, of have to, right? And so, uh, in other words, if I'm not allowed to do something, then, uh, then, I, then if I'm allowed to do something, then I must act on that something. 
And if I'm not allowed to do something, well, that's only because you've asserted some form of power over me in an attempt to harm me at a core level. You better not have ever been guilty of doing that something yourself or I'm coming after you, right? When we see... We see that peace fleshed out in verse 30. Paul says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? He's speaking to a specific situation here. He had been denounced in Corinth for him partaking of what he is currently telling people to abstain from, right? Paul reminds us here just how immature this situation is. Apparently some folks in the the rights camp found out that one time that Paul had the idol meet, and now they want to say some things. Obviously, he's a a hypocrite for telling everybody else not to have what he once had. Whether we're talking about first century letters to New Testament churches or we're talking about 21st century, 24-hour cable news, the world hasn't changed. There's nothing new under the sun. Sinful hearts will always find a way to make it petty. Always. The zero-sum game rolls along. has to. It has to. If, if you think that this, this world is all you got, if there's no larger fight than what's right in front of your face, then the zero-sum game is all you got to play. Like, if your worldview only allows for winners and losers in this life, then what else is available to you other than putting your foot on the throat of your opponent to make sure that you're the one that comes out on top? What other game do you have? And I know we live in a world that where most other worldviews would wholeheartedly and emphatically reject that idea. I'm aware of that. They would argue for something that sounds a whole lot more peaceful, I'm sure. But I truly believe that they do so in an intellectually inconsistent way. If all we have are power plays, then why should the powerful care? If all we have are power plays, then why should the powerful care? Put your foot on the gas and go get you some more of whatever makes you happy. You've got the advantage, use it. The Darwinian worldview has no category at all for mercy. And has no category at all for love. It's the Christian worldview that argues that this life isn't all we're positioning ourselves for. And it's the Christian worldview that says that we aren't the ones to be ultimately glorified here. And so in verse 31, Paul says this, it says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Okay, so whether you find yourself in a moment to enjoy or you find yourself in a moment to abstain, the driving question in the heart of a Christ follower, the driving question in the heart of a Christian is incredibly clear. Which option, A or B, currently gives God the most glory? That's the question we need to be asking. Sometimes the answer will be a joyful gratitude towards the good giver, and sometimes the answer will be a Christ-like sacrificial love towards your neighbor. All right? 
And so that answer is going to flesh out different ways, but that's the question we ask. But notice that neither of those options ends with the exaltation of you. Neither one of them does. They are both God-glorifying postures, not self-glorifying postures. So if you really do, if you honestly struggle to answer which circumstance am I in right now, if you honestly struggle to answer that question, try answering a different question. Who am I trying to make much of in this moment? Who am I hoping to celebrate with this thing? Is it myself? Or is it God? And then once you have faithfully answered that question, once you have answered it in a way that you are perfectly confident that you can stand before the judge of all the earth who sees your motives and your actions, once you, have, <laughs> once you have gotten to a place where you can confidently stand before your king and give your answer, take your next step, son. Go on. Take your next step in perfect confidence, trusting that your God is good, trusting that he loves you, trusting that he equips you, trusting that he has called you to find your rest in him and him alone. Take your next step. And if you're not ready to stand before a holy God and give an account for that decision, if you're not ready to shoulder that burden, then that sounds like a very clear sign that you're not ready to exercise that freedom. You're not ready. There's immaturity there that needs further discipleship. And so maybe one of the wisest things you can do in that moment is to lay that freedom down and find someone with a mature example to follow. And that's where Paul takes it into the next chapter. I know it's got a chapter break there, but it's a part of the text in, uh, that we just looked. And so we'll, we'll keep them together here. It's, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says this, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What a massive thing to offer, right? Can we be honest? What a terrifying thing to offer. Paul better be nailing this, right? He better be knocking this out. If you want to imitate Christ, take a long look at me, guys. That's either A, an incredibly arrogant thing to claim, or, or, or Paul's working his tail off to actually be an example worthy of emulating. Does that mean that Paul gets everything right? Not even close. In fact, um, to read his letters is to see him over and over again tell you that he very much is not getting it always right. Paul understands his sin. Paul understands his weakness. But he owns a burden here that I think very, very few followers of Jesus have ever actually thought through and decided to own. Follow me as I follow Christ. If you, if you want to be one of the mature ones here, you've got a giant responsibility resting in your lap. Follow Christ as faithfully as possible so that others have 
an example to emulate. And, and this is one of the reasons that when, when leaders fail in the church, it, it does so much damage to the cause of the gospel. It's not just a scandal. Yes, that alone is tragic and, and, and enough, but, it, but it's also because the example that has been built up has now been proven to be derelict. It's been proven to be false. People have emulated what is not worthy of being emulated. This is why there ought to be an incredibly high bar for leadership in a church. An incredibly high bar. We live in a world that elevates, quickly elevates talent and results, right? We see that in our sports, we see that in our politics, and sadly, we see it just as prominently in our churches. And I'll let the leaders of those other domains, the philosophers of those other domains, handle their own house. But man, I can speak to the church leadership side of this. I've got some opinions about it. Talent and results should never be a qualifier for ministry. I mean, ever. Not a qualifier. That job belongs to character. Now, talent and results can be incredibly valuable secondary piece when combined with character. It can be wonderful tools for really awesome, wonderful things, but without character, those things quickly become weapons. Not just quickly, they often become weapons. And so whether you fail to see that in me, or, or maybe you're visiting with us from another church today, watching online, whatever your deal is, whether you fail to see that in me, or whether you fail to see that in whatever leader you have of your, your own church family, your own church home, the counsel I would give to you is exactly the same. Run away. Run away. Don't wait for it to blow up. It eventually will. It doesn't need your eyewitness. Run away. Get out of there now. Find a leader that can say with integrity, imitate me as I do everything in my power to imitate Christ. And hopefully, just like Paul, they'll be first in line to tell you that they don't always succeed at that. But find you a guy that'll run with everything in him. And follow him. If God's got you here as a part of our NBC family in some kind of secondary or, or tertiary role here, hear me. We need you to be the kind of leader that can say with integrity, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This isn't just for the top level guy. This is the job for the mature. Imitate me as I do everything in my power to imitate Christ. And yeah, that's a terrifying thing to say, I know, but, but let's daydream for a moment, shall we? What do you think happens in the life and ministry of a church when you get a, a nucleus of the mature saying, I'll own that? Do you think that affects some things? Do you think that leads to some health? Do you think that leads to some things that God would work powerfully here? I think it would. Really really want to make God more famous here, and I think that would do it. So what do we do with all this, right? Like, like how can we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, I think our response is the same thing as it is every single week. We, we repent of sin, and we lean into what God has revealed about himself in the text. And this week, man, I think he's showing us that he is building a kingdom that is much bigger and much deeper and much more eternal than what we can ever see all on our own. 
The things that we often consider, the things at least I often consider to be the greatest victories of our cultural moment, incredibly small to what God has planned. He's aiming at much bigger eternal realities. And so if we find ourselves in the middle of these two kingdoms in dissonance, right? What's, what's our question? We've got to come back to our question. So is it beautiful? Is his option better? Is it truer? Is it good? Which one makes eternity-sized promises and maybe actually has the legs to fulfill them as everything else fades away? It's a good morning to answer those questions. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's an opportunity to, to, to put action to whatever God is stirring in, in your heart. If you want somebody to talk to, I'd, I'd love to be helpful. I'll be down front here uh, if you want to talk to somebody. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond to God's word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. We live in a world that likes the sound of things like, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. We'll celebrate that all day long, slap it on bumper stickers and everything. We love little cute phrases like that. The problem, though, is that our world has no logical foundation for that to ever actually stand upon. It doesn't make sense in a Darwinian place. You've got to rob presuppositions from the Christian worldview to even believe that altruism is a good thing. Now, some have pointed that out and called it dishonest. The Bible, though, actually paints a much more positive picture of the scenario. The Bible teaches that there are longings for God's good design written into the very fabric of our soul. That, that we've got to trace remembrance of the perfection of the garden buried deep down inside of us that yearns for the day when God will make all things new. That longing is deep, but that longing is also ultimately bent by our sin. Our sin separates us from a holy God, and our sin rightly deserves His just punishment. But the Bible also teaches that God made a way for our sin problem. He sent His Son. Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living, thereby perfectly pleasing God with His perfect obedience. He, he died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make payment for your sin and he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And as the king who conquered both sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith. To turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And hear me, you can do that now. You don't have to wait for some other hyper-spiritual moment. You can, you can meet Jesus in this moment. You can do that this morning. Uh, and so I'd love to be helpful to you. Uh, if, you're, if you're here with us in the room, I'll be down front. If you're watching us online, you can use the contact form linked in the video description. But whoever you are, and however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together as a church family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for another layer in an issue that we don't understand. Thank you, for, thank you for being a God who is building a kingdom far bigger and far wider and far deeper and far more eternal than the things that we focus our attention on. I'll confess, I, I fight for petty victories. I chase after and I give my affections to and I act wickedly towards those who would seek to take those petty victories from me.
but in your goodness, that is not a game you chose to play with us. You sent your son who took on the form of a servant who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You extended mercy and you extended grace and you extended your love towards the unlovely. Toward the wicked and the vile. Toward your enemy. And in your goodness and in your bigness and in your initial act of laying down what was rightly owed to you, you reconciled yourself to those who had no business knowing you. You're a good God. And you're patient with your people. You're patient with me. God, help us have eternal eyes on these things. Father, for those here who don't know you, would you make yourself known in this moment? Call people to yourself today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.